So tonight I'd like to talk some about what has been described as equanimity, how to cultivate equanimity, and how to experience what the Buddha described as the sure heart's release. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? The sure heart's release. To start by saying that in Buddhist meditation, as with most paths of awakening, the fruit of practice is considered to be freedom. The fruit of our practice is freedom. The Buddha said that just as the taste of the great oceans is salt, so the taste of a true spiritual path is that of freedom. So tonight, the questions that I'd like to address, what does it mean to be free? Free from what? Free to experience what? How do we cultivate this quality of freedom or what's been called equanimity? And I invite you also right from the start to just check into yourself. You might close your eyes for a moment and just ask yourself the question. If you check in with your inner experience, how much freedom do you experience within your being this moment? How much freedom is there this moment? What would it be like if that sense of freedom was expanded, however it is right now? What would it be like to be more free? Just to intuit that, glimmer upon that. What would more freedom be like this moment? What would help? What would make more freedom possible? Letting those questions be there uh, with this investigation, I'd like to tell you a story I heard recently. And this is a story that took place in Southern California. Some of you might have read about it in the newspaper. And it's a true story. And in this, a man uh, tied helium balloons to an outdoor lounge chair. Do you know this one? <laughs> and um, before he lay down in it, he brought along a BB gun and a transistor radio and a brown bag lunch. He laid down in the, on the outdoor lounge chair and up he went. <laughs> and he kept going up and up and up and floated out over the Pacific. And of course the LAPD started monitoring on, on their screen this guy that was floating. Um, tracking him, but he kept going up. He went miles, you know, really out and up, and um, saw a beautiful sunset, and then um, took his BB gun out, and one by one shot the balloons and drifted down and, and landed safely, so it seems. He was met by the police, and he was taken to jail immediately. You know, he violated airspace, you know. <laughs> There's a, you know, he's breaking a rule somehow. Um, but it got enormous press coverage. Like This was a big deal. And the police got so many phone calls that they ended up releasing the guy. They, it was just a massive public outroar that he was being incarcerated. And he was a celebrity instantly, of course. This is Southern California, right? <laughs> and uh, he was asked on TV why he did it. And he said, his response was, well, you know, a guy just can't sit around all day. <laughs> 
So this is in the spirit of people seeking freedom. You know, we all in some way want to break loose. And it's an interesting question what we want to break loose from. It changes over time as we mature. You know, a very a young child, children want to break loose from any rules that limit fun and pleasure, right? And then as they get older and become adolescents, they want to break loose from rules that limit fun and pleasure. And then as adults, <laughs> same thing, from rules that limit fun and pleasure. But actually, it has these subtle shifts. As adolescents, there's the quality of breaking free from values that feel imposed from the outside, from the culture, from parents, to sense empowerment as our own person. And then as adults, free from maybe some of the demands or expectations of the people around us, free from the demand of always having to uh, be productive or look a certain way or act a certain way or make money. What happens for many of us is that we feel imprisoned by demands and we spend a lot of decades, and this is true, trying to really do it well enough that we'll finally be free, make enough money or satisfy enough people's expectations or be productive enough to feel worthwhile or look good enough, you know, that, that in some way we'll get the respect and appreciation. And, you know, so we keep trying according to the demands in some way to be free by meeting them. And what we find is we're still not free. So there comes a point, and for some people earlier and some people later, when we begin to suspect that the liberation that we long for is not going to come because we can manipulate or control what's outside us or respond to outside demands. Rather, there's an inner freedom that's possible, that's in our capacity to experience, and we turn our attention to how that might happen. Mahatma Gandhi writes, I have only three enemies. My favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, is the British Empire. My second enemy, the Indian people, is far more difficult. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. So we spend, as I mentioned, sometimes lifetimes trying to control the externals, you know, or resist them, or numb out. We mistrust ourselves, we blame. And then eventually there's this turning inward to sense, well, what, what can we really find as our freedom? And discovering that it's our own mind, our habitual reactivity to life, that is truly the cage that we live in. The weather keeps coming. What we find out is that our tendency to resist how it is, to grasp onto things, that's where we stay imprisoned. So the Buddha described freedom in terms of equanimity. Equanimity is that balance that we can experience in the midst of all of life's circumstances. That regardless of the weather, because the weather, sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's not. Regardless of that, it's in our 
deepest heart's capacity to find what's called the one seat, that place of balance where we can be present and engaged with how it is without being lost in it, in its grips, reactive to it. Equanimity means freedom from reactivity. That rather than being lost in the program of all our historical reactivity, we have the freedom to live and respond in a creative way, moment by moment. This is what's meant by the sure heart's release. The most basic way that we're reactive is this armoring around our hearts. We're reactive in the most fundamental sense to what we consider to be the threat of other beings, of life. So we armor ourselves. And when the Buddha describes the sure heart's release, it's when we open out of that reactivity, we let go of that armor and connect with life directly. The release is that we're free to love, free to love and live fully. So what makes this possible? What are the grounds of equanimity, of this sense of balance, of being responsive and not reactive? It's been described metaphorically in the uh, scriptures in this way, that our being is like this great sky of awareness and all the weather, all the clouds come through, which is part of our being, but they don't define us that we stay connected with a sense of the boundlessness, the radiance, the essence of our heart and mind. So equanimity arises when the clouds are there, we recognize the clouds, but we don't get reactive. We allow them to come and to go. The other metaphor that's sometimes helpful, which is quite similar, is to sense we're this ocean of being, and these waves come and go, but the waves don't define us. They appear out of us, they resolve into us, they're part of us, but they don't define us. This is Mary Oliver. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this the fires and the black river of loss whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So when we talk about equanimity, it's not a passive, detached, in different stance. Rather, equanimity means to be fully present, alive with what's happening, and letting it come and letting it go. To live it fully without grasping, engaged but not enmeshed.
So this is what we practice in a very precise way when we sit. This is the practice of equanimity, each moment of mindfulness. We sit and what happens? For some we get these pains, you know, in our legs or our back. And what's the instructions? Certainly if it's very disturbing to move, but more generally to try to stay still, allow what's there, feel it fully, sense it as sensations that are changing, that are moving, to not react, to not grasp, to not push away, rather to let be, to let go of the thoughts that judge, to keep letting go moment after moment into just what's here. Or let's say delightful sensations or emotions arise, a sense of peace, of balance, of happiness. Again, the same instructions. Feel that fully, let it arise, let it appear in its fullness, let it go as it goes. To let these clouds come and go in this great sky of awareness. To lose equanimity in any given moment is to get caught in our reaction. I don't like this, this is wrong, something's wrong with me. So this is our training. This is the training in mindfulness practice to connect directly with what is true, recognizing what's there in the moment, experiencing fully, and then letting go into each successive moment. If we hold on to how one moment is, we're not available. Our hands are not open to receive what's next. What happens? What do we discover when there's this quality of letting go into the moments? What we recognize when we don't hold on to thoughts, hold on to experience, is that it all just keeps changing. It's been called the waterfall. It just keeps on happening. This sound, this sensation, this emotion, this breath. There's this ever-changing flow of experience. When we stay in our senses, see, thoughts get into a world that's static. You know, they represent things. You can think about a tree, and it's just an image, and it can stay the same. But if you truly look closely at a real tree, there's all sorts of changing and gradation, and the attention changes, and the wind moves it, and it eventually flowers and drops leaves. Over time, there's enormous change. The only thing static, disconnected, is when we're lost in our thoughts. So when we stay in our senses, there can be deep insight into impermanence, into change. The more we see that, the more we see impermanence, the more we naturally let go. Now the opposite holds true too. The more we stay in our thoughts, the more conditioned we are to grasp, to hold on. This is written by a Lakota Indian crowfoot. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is a little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. We don't grasp on so much when we begin to see it's all going, 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 going. 
We don't grasp when we hear the song of a bird. See a rainbow, see a firefly. When we sense impermanence, we can let go more deeply. So we sense it in the moments when we begin to practice, when we practice deeply. We also sense it in the broad sweep of our life, the changes that are happening, especially as we get older, that these bodies really are aging. They really are mortal. We see how people have come into our lives and left. We kind of lose the arrogance of youth, which really, in some ways, subscribes to immortality. Our interest shifts, our capacities change. Each change is a death to how it is. Every time there's a change, it's a death. Divorce is a death. The more we're identified with how it is, I belong in this relationship, or this kind of body, or this kind of job, the more identified, the more we perceive it as a death. Pema Chodron writes, for me, the spiritual path has always been learning how to die. That involves not just death at the end of this particular life, but all the falling apart that happens continually. The fear of death, which is also the fear of groundlessness, of insecurity, of not having it all together, seems to be the most fundamental thing that we have to work with. I think that's a beautiful description of what we encounter in meditation practice. When we stop holding on to thoughts, what we face is this changing flow of experience where we're asked to die again and again, let go of this moment, open to the next, and now let go of this because this is coming. It's truly learning how to die, and the flip side is how to open to life again and again learning to trust and rest in the flow of life. As we deepen our meditation practice, it becomes our habit to let go into life. We go, oh yeah, thinking, thinking, I've been holding on. Let go, back into the flow, into the next breath, the next sensation. We actually build a habit, a positive habit, of opening and allowing. How we evolve, each of us, how we evolve on the path is really determined by our habit in facing change. Change is inevitable. The seasons keep coming. The weather keeps emerging differently. How do we relate to that? Some of you know this. Woody Allen writes, some people want to achieve immortality through their work or their descendants. I intend to achieve immortality by not dying. So, if our habit is to resist change, we get smaller, inflexible, tight. We either get depressed or we get angry or we just stay scared. Either way, if we mistrust the movement of life, we tighten, we contract. If our habit is rather to open, ah, this, oh yes, this, making room for yet the next, then it's possible to become very wise, very compassionate, and very free. 
one member of this meditation community handed me this a few weeks ago. This is an excerpt from a high school graduation speech that was given by a boy named Spencer Summers, who died in 1990 at age 18 from cancer. So I'd like to read this to you. I guess I used to think that life is like a long highway. I was just cruising along on what I thought at the time to be an endless road. I, however, got stuck with a faulty engine and it forced me to stop cruising and to pull over onto the shoulder and to start walking. And it was once I started walking that I began to see all the beauty that was only a colorful blur before. And once I began to walk, the wind didn't blow through my hair because I didn't have any. And instead of music, there were the songs of birds and crickets to be heard. But once I started to walk, and once I took off my shades, I began to see things clearly for the first time. I began to see that success should not be measured by grades or dollar signs, but by how often you laugh and by how many people you can make smile in a day. I began to see that once you are at peace with God, peace with your fellow man comes as well as peace with yourself. And I began to see that our earthly highway not only has plenty of detours and potholes, but it isn't nearly as long as I once thought. So the wisdom of impermanence really frees us to live fully, to love fully, to see a lot more. Sometimes it's sudden. For many people, that's the karma, you know, a sudden illness or somebody close dying. And they are wake-ups. For some, it's a lot more gradual and yet a pretty steady dosage, as we all know here, of what's difficult, of what's painful. This weekend, I went to a reunion uh, with about 30 friends that I had known in high school about 25 years ago. And it was way more inspiring than I thought. I think I went in with a kind of superficial, oh, won't it be interesting to see how we've all aged and how we all look? And, and it went very deep because people were quite open with their stories of, of how difficult things had been. You know, one man described how his son ha- is manic depressant and very, you know, very painful, He's run away and been institutionalized. And another described uh, an, an awful divorce and another the loss of several loved ones in a row. We, everybody had their stories. But what was so notable was how, as I mentioned before, the, the arrogance of youth, that sense of it goes on forever just wasn't there. And so there was this real valuing of life and each other and, and the moments that just would have been impossible without having been weathered by um, both the dukkha or difficulties and the sense that we just don't have that long. It's a powerful recognition. One of the stories that floated around on the weekend, I kind of thought of like a Western Zen story. You know? It's kind of a cute contrast. Uh, It says that in 1923, describes the six most successful men in the country. The first was the president of the largest steel company, the second president of the largest gas company, 
the third, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, the fourth, the greatest wheat speculator, the fifth, the president of the Bank of International Settlement, and the sixth was described as the great bear of Wall Street, 1923. Okay, so 55 years later, and this came out in 1978, the first, Charles Schwab, died a pauper, the second, Edward Hobson, is insane, third, Richard Whitney, released from prison to die at home, the fourth, Arthur Cougar, died abroad penniless, the fifth shot himself, and the sixth, Cosby Rivermore, died of suicide. Now, in that same year, in 1923, when those guys were all real successful, the winner of the most important golf championship was Jean Sarazen. He won the U.S. Open and PGA tournaments. And today, that's 1978, he is still playing golf and is solvent. So the teaching here, stop worrying about business and start playing golf. (laughs) So our practice, (laughs) we're going to all go and play golf (laughs) across the street, is to wake up out of the worry thoughts. We have so many dreams and, and stories and planning and worrying and remembering that we get lost in, that we believe in, to wake up out of them and really play the only game worth playing, which is to be here. That really is it. I mean, we can think that there's more important things to do in our life, things to accomplish, and certainly there are many things that are creative and exciting and beautiful, but what makes them that is our capacity for presence, that we can go along thinking, well, after I get this, this, and this done, then I'll learn to come and be in my body and with other people. It doesn't happen. The way we live today is the way we live our life. Were we here much today? Or is there much freedom in the moments? Freedom to really be present, be connected, to respond but not react. Henry Miller writes, the moment one gives close attention to anything, even a blade of grass, it becomes a mysterious, awesome, indescribably magnificent world in itself. Each moment is so alive if we allow ourselves to rest in it, to be fully there, to let go into it. So this is a grounds of equanimity, this direct recognition, ah, this is what's happening, this moment, and not interfering. To have that balance of equanimity, to have that freedom, means not to interfere, not to try to manipulate our experience. Now, just to say that there's a real misunderstanding that not interfering means to be indifferent. And I bring that up because it's very easy to think, well, if we're just letting be, that means that there's no real care, especially when it comes to suffering. Um, So just to say some words on that, that letting be means to accept this moment what's true. Letting be means let be, allow, accept right here that yes, there's pain, there's sickness, there's aging, there's death. To let be means to be with that with a clear mind and a soft, caring heart. 
It does not mean not to respond. There's a real difference between reactivity and responsiveness. Reaction happens when pain that we experience conditions an aversion and acting out. When we, re- when we react to painful weather with hate, with anger, with judgment, when it comes out of fear, that's reaction. It's habitual and it's conditioned. We all have some of that. I mean, everyone is wired to react. It's our potential to begin to wake up to that and learn rather to respond. To respond means that when the weather arises, and this is the key to all meditation, when we encounter what's difficult, we stay put, we open to it, we feel it fully, and then if from our hearts, from our caring, there's an appropriate response that can alleviate suffering or they can express love or express creativity, we do that from our hearts. That's responding. When the Buddha taught how to cultivate the qualities of the heart, he taught it as the divine abodes that to be truly present we needed to awaken our innate capacity to experience loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, which means pleasure in the joy of others. Those are the first three of the divine abodes. The fourth that the Buddha taught was equanimity. The reason equanimity is considered the one that makes all the others truly possible is that with equanimity There's the wisdom of impermanence. They're seeing that these appearances come and go and come and go. And there's this space that recognizes and allows and accepts that coming and going, and yet still, from care, responds with love and with compassion. It's said that true equanimity and freedom combine an understanding mind together with a compassionate, loving heart. To see all as a passing show, there's nothing solid, nothing permanent, and to absolutely love this changing life that dances through us. Our greatest suffering is that we hold back that love. We sometimes see, okay, it's a dancing show, but there's a holding back. We don't allow ourselves to engage, to become part of it in a truly deep, participatory way. We don't let ourselves live this life fully. We're afraid to engage, to really let another being in our life deeply. To dance fully means, in a sense, to lose our armored, protected, separate self. It's said that we lose the self and gain the world, yet we're afraid of that. We have this Sounds great, but not yet. I'm not ready yet, you know. So what do we do instead? We limit our participation, our loving, our engaging, to just a few people, few activities, few places. We have our spots where we open a little more, and then beyond that it's our habit to stay separate and closed. And even with the few people where we allow ourselves to to love, it's conditioned. It's conditioned on whether it's a safe time or a safe moment or we're being pleasured the way we want to be. 
So it all becomes quite conditional. What we do is we attach this kind of boundless deep love to a particular form given particular circumstances. We make our world small. A wonderful story that's described in the Pali Canon involves Ananda, who's one of the Buddha's dearest disciples, uh, very known for his great heart. And in this story, Ananda meets a woman of lower caste by a watering hole and asks her if she'd be uh, willing to give him a drink. And she said, oh, but sir, it would be the greatest honor, and I can't. I can't. I'm too low a caste, and it would be offensive. And he responds, I, I didn't ask for your caste. I just asked if I could have some water. And so she served him water and then followed him back to where the Buddha was teaching and told the Buddha that she absolutely was in love with Ananda and could she just go anywhere that Ananda went. And the Buddha said, Sister, you're not in love with Ananda. You're just in love with Ananda's kindness, which is a big thing to be in love with, isn't it? So it brings up what is it that we're in love with in each other? And what we find when we look closely is that we're in love with love, with the experience of connection. And it manifests when we touch truth or beauty, aliveness. And yet we attach it to specific forms at specific times. When we do that, we then grasp on. Some of you know William Blake writes, he who binds to himself a joy, does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So this is really the grounds of freedom, of equanimity. It's to see what is true, to find a balance, a presence with just what's happening, to love fully this life and to let go, to let it come, to let it go. Each time we meditate, whether it's formally as we do in here or informally by going through the world with a sense of presence, we begin to see that it's all changing, that we can let go and in letting go open to a very enormous sense of creativity and aliveness. We waken out of the dream to touch what is sacred and true. It's been described as each moment of mindfulness is like a moment of making a footstep or an imprint that allows the spirit to just absolutely flourish. This is a Native American planting initiation song. I have made a footprint, a sacred one. Through it the blades push upward, through it the blades radiate. Over it, the blades float in the wind. Over it, I bend the stalk to pluck the ears. Over it, the blossoms lie. Gray smoke arises from my house. There is cheer in my house. I live in the light of day.
it's important as we practice and deepen our experience on this path to notice when we have moments of freedom, of equanimity. There's lots of them. There's lots of moments where we're not grasping, we're not resisting, where we're just with life. Not interfering, but rather just appreciating, noticing how it is. It happens more than we think. And recognizing these moments, ah, okay, this is a moment of freedom. Even though that's thinking, thinking, the recognition begins to familiarize us and incline us towards living in that way, residing in equanimity more and more. So take a moment now, if you will, just to reflect. When you have sensed recently some freedom in your heart, whether it was today or yesterday or last week, what you're aware of as times or spots or instances that might have been ordinary or more extraordinary, where there was a sense of freedom, a sense of presence. Some people describe it with that feeling that, oh, I could just die right now. This is fine, full, enough. What we'll do is just take some moments to do a brief meditation on equanimity. If you need to adjust how you're sitting, please do so. Equanimity, the divine abode. Sense what a gift it can be to bring a peaceful heart to the world within and around you. You can offer yourself the wish, may I be balanced and at peace. Meditating on equanimity, we acknowledge and reflect on how all created things, all beings, arise and pass away. Joys, sorrows, pleasant events, people, buildings, animals, nations, whole civilizations arise, pass away. The beginning of this class has passed away. The moments, each moment, the last breath you took is gone. It's history. Let yourself rest in the midst of changing experience. We offer ourselves the wish, may I learn to see the arising and passing of all nature with equanimity and balance. May I experience life with an open and free heart. May I respond from that open heart to the world. May I respond with compassion. And then taking these moments in silence, allowing your inner life to be just as it is, taking the one seat, 
caring presence without interfering, resting in whatever arises with an open and compassionate heart. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. We close as we opened with the chanting of the sound current of Om. Please inhale deeply and exhale. And then inhaling together. Ah.